Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. Are we here? You guys don't sound like it. We're going to get you out before the Packers start today. Don't worry about that. Um, Welcome this morning. Don't have a bit of that until I get up here. Um, Welcome this morning as we begin week two of our series, Dreamer. Uh, And as we begin, I have a question for you that you probably won't be able to answer right now. But it will be good fodder for around the table as you, as you talk or even later on this afternoon. But the question is this. Have you ever really, really wanted something? But then when you got it, it wasn't anything at all what you were expecting. When we were in college, the earth's crust was just beginning to harden. And <laughs> Beck and I had a had a, a, a little Ford Escort, little black, two-door, I mean, four-speed four on the floor. It got us where we needed to go. It was paid for, and it was fine. It was fine until we had our first son. And then it was like trying to wrestle the car seat in the back and trying to get him in the back seat with the, with the car seat and in summers in Minnesota, we're, we're hot, and we didn't have air conditioning in the car, and so he would cry. And So one day I said to Becca, I said, uh, maybe we should look at buying another car. And she's the, the money person. In every couple, in every uh, couple, there's usually a spender and a saver. I'm the spender. Becca's the saver. She worked at a bank, and she said, ah, I, I don't think that we can do this. And I said, well, let's just go down and look. And so we went down to the car dealer. And the guy says, what do I got to do to put you in a car today? And I told him my situation. And he says, got just the car for it. It's like he saw me coming. I must have had sucker written on my face. But he saw me coming. He said, I got just the car for you. He shows me this gold Ford Escort wagon. Beautiful. Cloth seats, air conditioning. It was everything that I wanted. Throws me the keys and says, take it for a drive. So I took it for a drive. And I'm like. Yes, yes, this is the car that I want. This, this is the car. I, I can see myself driving this car. And so we get home, the, the, or the salesman says, so what do you think, folks? I said, well, we have a, uh, a plan, or we have a rule that we never make a snap decision. We go home, we pray about it first, and then come back. Okay, fine. So the whole way home, I'm lobbying for this car. I, I, I think we can do this. And Becca's like, ah. And so we get to the supper table. And we're still talking about this. And Becca said, I don't think we should do this. I don't think it's a good idea. And finally, I said, look, I'm the man of the house, and I will make the decisions in this house. Do not do that. You younger people, do not do that. That does not make for good supper conversation. We got the car. And it was nothing like what I expected. And today... Today, as we look at at the story of Joseph, we're going back again, because as we talked last week, this is a messy family, and some of us know exactly what it's like to live in a messy family. You grew up in a home where where dad showed up every once in a while, or mom wasn't around at all, or you had, had sibling rivalry that was just incredible. I mean, you had a sister, you had a brother that was just, you know, the most amazing person in the world, and you just kind of went unnoticed in home. Or there were things that were happening around you that was just, it, it was a mess. And last week we talked about this family is a mess. 
It was a powder keg that was waiting to explode, but God used this messy family. And one of these people in the family is going to have an influence in that whole area to save literally thousands of lives from starvation. And one of these brothers, most unlikely source, is going to be the one through who the line of Jesus is going to come. You don't think that God can redeem messy families? You may be here this morning, and you may have come from a messy family. You may be in a messy family. Know this, that God is at work. But in this family, and in this account today, we're going to see an account of three different people. Three different people who wanted something, really wanted something. But when they got it, it wasn't what they expected. Be careful. Be careful when you get what you want because it may not turn out as you expected. And as we talk this morning, I don't want to assume that everyone knows the story of Joseph or everyone knows the story of Jacob. So I'm going to just give us a, a 50 cent tour of what this family, why is this family such a mess? And where this family begins is with Jacob's grandfather. And it begins here. It begins up here. At the very top, you get that little city called Haran. That's where Abraham, this is Jacob's grandfather, lives. And God says to Abraham, I want you to leave your family, I want you to leave your home, and I want you to go to the place that I'm going to tell you about. And God doesn't tell him where it is that he's going. He just says, I want you to leave. And Abraham packs up Sarah, and he packs up his nephew and all that he has, and he goes. And Abraham, understand, is no spring chicken at this point. He's 75 years old. His wife is 65 years old, and yet they go. They get down to the bottom, down, down to Beersheba, and God says, you're going to have a son. And he's like, how? I mean, think about it. He says, I'm, I'm an old man, and my wife, she's an old lady. How's this ever going to happen? And God says, walk outside. Walk outside and look at the stars, and if you can count the stars... He says, that's how many, you're, that's how many people are going, to be, come, are going to come out of your line. And it said that Abraham believed, excuse me, believed God, and they had a son. But not the way that God wanted. You know, isn't it interesting that sometimes we want to help God out? <laughs> that is not new. That, this started all the way back here, because God told them they're going to have a son, and yet one year went by, and two years went by, and three years went by, and four years went by, and nothing. And Sarah says finally, you know, why don't I give you my Egyptian, my Egyptian servant, and you can, she can be your wife, and you can have children through her, and they'll be called our children. And they have a child, and his name is Ishmael. And oh, what a mess. What a mess in that family that, that, that caused. It wasn't the way that God wanted it to go. Don't try to help out God. He can handle it himself. Well, they have a son. Finally, they have a son. How old is Abraham at this point? He's 100 years old. You talk about a miracle child. And Sarah is 90 years old. And they have this child, and they name him Isaac. Laughter, literally, is what his name means in the Hebrew. Isaac. And when Isaac is in his late 30s, almost 40-ish, Abraham calls his most trusted servant to him and says, I want you to find a, a wife for my son, but not, not from around here. I want you to go back to my people 
and find a son, or find, excuse me, find a wife for my son. So the servant goes all the way back up to Haran, and he says, God, it's been a long trip, and he said, here's what I would like you to do for me. If, if, if this honors you, let the woman that I ask, I'm going to ask somebody for a drink of water, and let the woman that you want for Isaac be the one that says, not only will I give you a glass of water, but I'll take care of your camels too. That's a major thing. A camel can drink a bathtub full of water. And there would have been many camels on this trip. This girl comes, and she's a beautiful girl. And her name is Rebecca. And she comes there, and he says, would you give me a glass of water? And she says, no problem, and I'll take care of your camels as well. And he's like, God be praised. My, my trip is over. This is the one that God has provided. And in that trip, in that trip, the servant meets Re Rebecca's brother, and he is a guy by the name of Laban. And we're going to get to know Laban more today. So we got Laban, and we have Jacob. Jacob is the son of Rebekah and Isaac. So the servant brings Rebekah back. Isaac and Rebekah get married, but they have twins. The oldest one, the one that comes out first, he's hairy. He's just like an ape. And, in, and we said that last week, he's, he's a man's man. He's a man of the outdoors. If he were living here in Wisconsin, he'd be doing archery season. He'd be doing rifle season. He'd be doing black powder. He'd be doing trapping. He'd be doing fishing, wearing flannel with a big beard. I mean, he is a man's man. And he was everything that Isaac wanted in a son. But the problem is, Isaac had two sons. And Jacob, it says about him, he's, he's a quiet man. Do not take that as being that he's a wimp. He has a different personality, and we talked about this in every home. In every home, your kids, they, all have, they can all look alike, but they have different personalities, don't they? Some of them come out, and they're so compliant, and others, they come out, and they're just it's like, oh, you know, they, they, they tax you at every, at every space. And these two sons are different, but there's an issue that's going on in this family because it says that Isaac who loved the taste of wild game. He loved venison. Loved Esau. And it leaves it hanging out there because the inference is that not only does he love Esau, he really doesn't care for Jacob. Jacob's not what he's looking for in a son. But Jacob's mother, Rebekah, loves Jacob. And the inference is, she really didn't care for Esau. Hairy old ape, comes in smelling like the outside all the time. Now, Jacob's a little bit cleaner. But then Isaac, the dad, tries to do an end around. God said that the older would serve the younger, or the younger would serve the older. And Isaac seeks to give his son, the son that he loves, the blessing. The problem is, Rebecca is right outside the tent. She says, oh, no, not on my watch. No, 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 no. I have dreams for this boy, just as Isaac had dreams for Esau. And she said, this is what we're going to do. And they develop an incredible ruse. And the end of the story is they deceive, Jacob deceives his father Isaac out of the blessing. And the blessing that Isaac was going to give to Esau was everything. And he was going to leave Jacob with nothing. And Jacob, as a result of getting the blessing, he got what he wanted. 
But in the end, it wasn't what he expected. He will never see his mother again, ever. Can you imagine what the relationship in that home was like between Isaac and Rebekah after that, knowing that she was complicit in the deception, knowing that she was part of this deception? And Jacob flees for his life and goes back up to Haran. And there he meets Laban. And he's been with Laban now a month, and Laban says to him, you're my own flesh and blood. He's going to have to name his wages here in a minute. And he says that Jacob stayed with him for a month. Now, what do we know about Laban? Laban's a piece of work. He is a piece of work. We first meet Laban when the servant comes to find a wife for Isaac. And he goes back up to Haran. And when the servant meets, when the servant meets Rebecca for the first time, it's like, God be praised. She's just the one. And he gives her a gold nose ring. Now, I don't think little stud in your nose. This is a no the closest thing that I can think of is like some women in India, like when they get married, they have the big, big nose ring on. It's beautiful. Just absolutely beautiful. It's solid gold. He would have given her solid gold bracelets as well. And Becca comes back and she says to her brother, she, now Rebecca had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to the man at the spring, and as soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm and heard Rebecca tell what the man had said to her, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. There's a lot going on in this verse. It shows us a lot about the desire, about the desire and about the drive of, of Laban. It said that he hurried. What does that tell us about him? One of the things we know about Laban is that he desires wealth and honor and prestige. And this we also know about him. Laban will do anything to anyone to get what he wants, even if it means hurting those who are closest to him. And some of you know exactly what that feels like, because that was home. And Laban hurried. Why is that such a big thing? Men of that culture did not hurry. If you were a man of means, you did not hurry. You got somebody to hurry for you. You had a son that would hurry for you. But men like that did not hurry because it meant that they would have to pull up their robe and that they would have to run. He runs. Why does he run? He sees the bracelets. But what else does he see? The very last line, he sees the camels. The camels are a sign of wealth, honor, and prestige, everything that Laban has been looking for. And those camels would have been loaded down with wedding gifts, with dowry items. I mean, they would have been loaded down. And Laban says, hey, I've got a place in the house for you. I've got a place prepared for your camels. And Laban, or Abraham's servant begins to share about Abraham. <laughs> Listen to this. He says, the Lord has blessed my master abundantly became, and has become wealthy. That's all Laban needed to hear, but it gets better. He has given him sheep and cattle and silver and gold, maidservants and menservants, camels and donkeys. My master's wife Sarah has borne him a son in his old age, and he's given him everything that he owns. Can you see Laban, his eyes kind of glazed over, little dollar signs on his eyes as he's like, I'm rich, I'm rich. All that stuff is coming to me. And Rebecca is given as the wife 
And she goes back. It's not the easiest thing in the world to get away from Laban, but they do. And this servant is pretty good. He gets away from Laban. Jacob will not be so lucky. And so we know this about Laban. We know what drives him. We know what it is, what, what, drives, his, what drives him. But we know something else about him that we're going to figure out. He is a liar and he is a cheat. If that boy's mouth is moving, he's probably lying. I mean, he just, he is a liar and he is a cheat. And he gets what he wants through lies and deception. And that's interesting. Because that is a cord that winds its way through this family. It begins with Abraham. Abraham, on two occasions, tells his wife to lie for him. Don't tell him I'm, I'm your wife. Tell him I'm your sister. Was that technically true? Technically. But why did Abraham do it? He asks his wife to lie for him so that he can do what? He can save his own skin. And his son, Isaac, does the very same thing. And Jacob deceives his father out of the blessing. And Jacob is going to live a life of deception. This is a cord that winds itself through this family. And it's going to rear its ugly head next week as we hear Pastor Sam pick up, the, pick up next week and talk about the family. Deception. Lies. Some of us are, we've been hurt deeply by deception and lies. I can remember uh, when Becca and I were uh, younger, we were uh, headed on our way to, to general council. We were living in the Sacramento area, and we were traveling up to Seattle. We had a Ford LTD with a 460 engine in it. It was made to haul a 25-foot trailer and in and around the mountains of, of California. I mean, that thing, you could put it on cruise, and it would just go right up the mountains and not even grunt. I mean, it was just, that had a big engine in it. But boy, could that thing drink the gas, too. And we had to stop in Oregon. And in Oregon, you can't pump your own gas. Maybe today you can, but then you couldn't. And so we pull in, and the guy says, check your oil. And I said, sure, go ahead, whatever, whatever you want. And so he leaves the hood up. And I said, everything okay? And he goes, mm. yeah. He said, how far are you going? I said, well, we're going to Seattle. Mm. Ah, it's probably nothing. I said, what? what? What's going on? Well, he said, it, it, are, are you going to be in traffic at all? And I said, yeah, I would imagine around Seattle area. Oh. Well, I, I just said because I see you got two little kids and you got your wife there. and You, you may have some trouble in the, in, the tra in the traffic. And I said, what? And he said, well, your fan clutch is broken. I didn't even know there was such a thing in a car. I mean, I didn't know the fan clutch. And he, I said, well, what do you mean? He says, here, he held onto the fan, and he said, start your car. He said, and he held onto the fan, and he said, see? He said, that should just rip right out of my hand. He said, that fan clutch is broken. And he said, that's going to that's gonna affect you when you get in traffic. And so I said, okay. I said, well, what's that going to cost to fix? And he told me, and we laughed because the price of the part was cheaper than the labor. And so he goes and does his thing, and all the time the other sales people are walking by me and they're smiling. And I should have figured out, well, I had a hinkling that something was going on when one of the guys says, oh, and your antifreeze is also bad because it's green. Hmm. I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. Um, shut the hood and gave me the bill. And it was for a lot more. 
than what he said. And I said, that, that wasn't what you quoted me. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And everyone else was, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And I said, no, 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 that wasn't what you said. That is not right. I, that's what I said. And I thought, oh, okay. You deceived me. And the sting of deception. And some of us know what the sting of deception feels like. I'm going to elaborate more on that later on. But it can have devastating effects in families, can it? And it can begin so subtly, can it? We live in a day now with cell phones, but it used to be in the old days when you had just one of the regular, regular phones. The phone would ring and I would hear from the back room, I'm not there. Tell them I'm not there. Or you go, well, we didn't do this. Or you, I've heard this, where you go to, a, you go to a, a buffet and the mom looks at the kid and says, you're 11. You're not 13, you are 11. We're sitting in the airport in Dallas. Thank the Lord we had rented a car. We've just traveled, I don't know how many thousand miles from Hong Kong to, to Dallas to be with Beck's mom. And we get to the Dallas airport, no cars. Everybody, long lines. I think, what on earth is going on here? Long lines. And the lady, she goes up and finally, she, this lady sitting next to me goes up and she kind of whispers in the ear of, this, of the sales guy behind the counter. And she comes back to him and she says, I told him you got something wrong with your heart. So when they come and talk to you, act like you got something wrong with your heart. So the guy that comes up to oh, sir, he said, you know, he's helping him up and everything. We have a car for you right now, and, or you know, we'll help you up, and I hope everything's okay. And it's like, you liar. You know, you liar. And it just begins very subtly, doesn't it? Don't tell your mother. Don't tell your father about this. This is our secret. And in the end, deception. Deception can really lay a hold in our families. And it's very destructive, isn't it? More on that in a bit. Laban's got a problem, though. It, it's not a new problem. It's an old problem. It's a problem that probably manifested itself four to five years before this time. And the problem, uh, let me see. Uh, I think we may have a slide out of place. Anyway, anyway I'll, I'll get to it. He's got a problem, and the problem, the problem's not an old problem, not a new problem, it's an old problem, and it's a problem that manifests itself probably four years before this time, but he's got a solution. He's finally put on a solution. Remember, if anything, if Laban is anything, he's observant, and he knows three things about Jacob. He knows that he's all alone. That's major. That is a major point. He's all alone. He knows that he's a good worker. Laban could use a good hand around there. But the third thing that he knows is that his daughter has caught Jacob's eye. And Jacob is madly, overwhelmingly in love with, with Rachel. And Laban says to him, he says, you're my own blood. You're my flesh and blood. He said, you've stayed with me for a month, and just because you're blood doesn't mean you shouldn't work for wages. He said, name your wages, knowing all along what it is that Jacob wants. And Jacob blurts out. Oh, here's the problem. So excuse me. All right, we, got a, we had a slide out of line. Here's the problem. Laban has two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. If the Hebrew wanted you to have just that much information, it would have stopped there. But it adds two more elements. And it says, Leah had weak eyes. 
But Rachel, Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Leah had weak eyes. What, what does that mean? And we, we, we don't really know. Scholars don't know what that means. But in a culture that sees only the eyes, eyes are a big deal. And Leah's, they're weak. And what's Laban's problem? Because what is it about Rachel? It says, Rachel is lovely in form and in beautiful. You know when you, that's only shown twice in the Old Testament. Do you know where it shows up again? Queen Esther. You see people like Tamar. You see people like David. David's family must have been just handsome and very good looking. They're talked about being beautiful. But it's Esther and it's Rachel that get this to sing. Not only are they beautiful by face, they got a body that's a knockout as well. And I mean, and this is what Jacob is attracted to. And Laban's thinking, how in the world do I get rid of Leah? Because I can't marry, there's a line of guys standing on line for Rachel. But I got to marry Leah off first. And then he's got, he's got it. I got, the solution is standing right here in front of me. The solution came a month ago. And it's Jacob. And he says to Jacob, name your wages. Name your wages, knowing full well what it is that Jacob wants. He wants Rachel. And he sets the trap. And Jacob bites. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban smiles because he thinks, I got him. I got him. Jacob is a terrible negotiator. In a normal situation, Jacob wouldn't even be part of this negotiation. Jacob has nobody there to, you know, there's no uncles there. There's no father there to say, no, shut up. No, no, we are not giving you seven years. Three at the best, three and a half maybe, but we're not giving you seven years. There's nobody in Jacob's family to do this. And Jacob works for seven years. And every day, Laban just smiles. Because he knows. He knows this. He says, it is better to give her, that I give her to you, than to some other man. Stay here with me. What's going on here? The author could have said, Rachel. It's better that I give Rachel to you than some other man. But he doesn't. Why? Because both men have a different idea of what it is they're going to get and do. Jacob thinks what? Jacob thinks her is who? Rachel. But Laban knows all along who it is. It's Leah. And every day for seven years, Laban smiles. Because he knows he knows he's deceiving Jacob. It says, Jacob worked seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days because of his deep love, because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. That is as coarse and as raw as what it sounds like. I have put my time in. I am ready to be married. Give me my wife. And Laban continues to smile because he brings the family together. 
So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. Well, when the evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob. And Jacob lay with her. And you're saying, how does Jacob not know that this is Leah? I think there's at least two to three reasons. Number one, Jacob's fairly drunk by this time. Number two, Leah would have come in heavily veiled. And number three, it's nighttime. And can you imagine the next morning, this girl that he has worked for seven years for, now I finally get to see her. And he wakes up, and it says, in the morning, in the morning there was Leah. Can you imagine? My heart just breaks for Leah. Can you imagine? This is the man that she has been watching from a distance. She stands in the shadow of her, of her more pretty sister, Rachel. But she has got a husband now. And we're going to talk about her desires in a bit. But she's got a husband now. And yet when he sees her, Leah! Can you see Jacob doing the, covering himself up and kind of backing out of the tent? And then he goes to find Laban. And he says, what is this you've done to me? I've served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Wow, is this the pot calling the kettle black, huh? The chickens have come home to roost. And Laban says this. He says, it is not our custom here to give the younger in marriage before the older one. Literally in the Hebrew, to give the younger before the firstborn. And he lets it sit there. An arrow pierces, pierces Jacob's heart because Jacob, I think, for the first time realizes what it is that he has done. Jacob has lived a life of deception. And Jacob feels what it's like to be the deceiver. But Jacob has no choice. Remember? Laban is a man who desires wealth, power, and prestige. What's Jacob's drive? What, what's Jacob? What's, what's his skin in the game? Jacob is the man who's looking for significance and for meaning in his life. I wonder if Jacob thought, wow, if I got this beauty next to me and I take this beauty, even though dad is blind, if I take this beauty back home and say, I brought home a wife from where your people were from, where your mother, where your wife was from. I brought a, I brought a wife home from there. And Dad, you should see her. She is a knockout. You, can you imagine the kids that we're going to have through, through her? Because there's something going on in the background at this time. After Jacob deceives Laban, Esau finds out about this. And he finds out because Esau has been marrying the women that are around the area where they live, Hittite women. And when he finds out how this soul bothered his parents, he goes off and finds Uncle Ishmael and gets one of his daughters. If I can just bring home this beauty, then maybe my dad will say, you did good. You did. He's searching for significance and for meaning in his life because he has no family, he has no home, he has no money, he has nothing. But if I can just get Rachel by my side, then my stinking life will finally have some meaning. And we think about, what is it that drives us? Why is it that we push ourselves to in the gym? Why is it that it's so important that my dad be proud of me? 
or that my mom loved me or that they say something. Why is it that I so achieve to get the best grades? Why is it that I have to have that job and live in that home and have that person for my wife? Why is it so important that my kids do this or that? What is it that drives me? And many times when you peel that onion back, you find at the core of it the desire. And here's the issue with desire. It's not wrong to have desire. We should have desire. We should want certain things in our lives. We should want certain things for our kids. But when that desire becomes, some, becomes a need to where when I have that, then I will be. And when that desire is for anything that is, when a desire to meet the deepest needs of my life, when that desire is for anything or anyone outside of God, it will always leave us empty. Always. Because God is the only one. We were created. We were created with a God-sized hole in our heart. A place that only God can fill, Blaise Pascal said. We need God, and he is the only one that can meet the deepest needs of our life. Or as Tim Keller said, as Tim Keller said, when you pin your hopes on anything or anyone, I love this quote, on anyone other than God to fill the deep needs of your life, in the morning, it's always Leah. In the morning, it's always Leah. It will never satisfy and this deception has so destroyed this family. And, and, and deception in our families, it, it can be so destructive, can it? We, we, some of us, we're here and we feel the pain of what deception was like in our lives. Where somebody said something to us, but it wasn't what they really meant. And they led us along, and one of your first responses when you're deceived is what? It, it's anger. Jacob is angry. For seven years, he has, he has worked for Rachel, and he gets Leah. And for the next seven years, it's going to be like eating gravel every day because he sees Laban, and Laban is still smiling because he knows I got another seven years out of him. And in families and in lives and marriages, deception, it has a devastating effect, doesn't it? And, and when the deception is found out, well, what happens? Many times anger. But how do we respond? Just from a guy standpoint, many times when, when and it's not just deception, it's other things as well. When something is done, when we're found out or when we do something that's wrong that hurts our spouse, our response can be many times, okay, well, forgive me. I, but, all right, I, I realize, ooh, wow, I realize what I did. Would you please forgive me? And then we want everything to be okay, right? Okay, okay, now that everything's okay, right? Wrong. I don't know what it is about women, but they don't, they just don't let it go just like that. They begin to process it, don't they? And then it works through their hearts. But here's the thing, ladies. Here's the thing, men. Don't assume that everything is going to be okay the moment you say, will you forgive me? But ladies, please, I've been in some marital counseling sessions where a husband has poured out his heart and he is truly sorry, and I've turned to the spouse and said, okay, what is it that you just heard your spouse say? A very good, this is a caveat, this one's free, a very good rule of thumb to use when you're talking, uh, when you're trying to get your point across, is the five-minute rule. 
You get five minutes to share your side of the story. Five minutes. I, I, can't, I can't say it all in five minutes. Average time, two. Two. It takes you about two minutes to share your side of the story. But I've heard guys just pour out their heart. And I'll say to the wife, so what is it that you heard? Or I'll say to the spouse, because there's been other times where it's been on the other foot. What, what did you just hear? Oh, I heard this and I heard that. And I, okay. And he's asked you to forgive him. W will you? Hmm. I'll think about it. <laughs> and what's happened then is gasoline has just been poured all over the fire and it just erupts again. If you've been wronged, if you've been hurt, begin the process of forgiving. I say the process because it is a process of healing. When you've been hurt deeply, something happens, a lack, lack of trust. I mean, is, is, is Jacob ever able to trust Laban again? I wouldn't trust that guy any farther than I could throw an elephant, you know? You just, you can't trust this guy. He's a cheat. He's proved it. And sometimes we want that trust to be rebuilt, but again, that is a process as well. And to rebuild that trust takes two. It takes two people to rebuild that trust. But my call to us is to begin that process and to lean in. Because for some of you, you're here, you're single. And your hurt comes from a parent or an uncle or a teacher or a coach. That person may even be gone. And how do you deal with that? And I really believe that it begins by, by choosing to forgive, by choosing to bring about restoration and healing, understanding that some relationships, there's got to be some boundaries. If there's been an abusive person, you can work to restore that relationship, but understanding that there's going to be some major boundaries. If there's been abuse, you're not going to want to put your children into that situation. They can love grandpa or they can love uncle, but you want to be very careful about putting them back into what could be a potentially dangerous situation for them. But we can be civil, and we can choose to forgive, can't we? Because, you know, I think about it. How many times have we said something to God, would you forgive me? And he does. And then we go right back and do the same thing over again. And God does what? He chooses to forgive again. And he chooses to work to restore the... Well, that, that, that's God, Pastor. And that, that's not me. You don't know the level of hurt that I've been through. I don't, but God does. And God's the one who can bring the healing. But there has to be desire on our part for that. Jacob works for another seven years. And Laban gets what he wants. And Jacob got what he wanted. But neither of them got what they expected. And when we're deceived, remember that God's the one who keeps score. And we may be deceiving others, but we're not deceiving God. A conversation may be 
for this afternoon or maybe later on this week is about restoring trust. And maybe a prayer point in your, in your life and in your marriage, relationship with your kids, is how do I go about restoring trust and bringing healing back into this relationship? Because there's one more. There's one more person in this, in this uh, situation, in this family. She's the silent victim. We don't hear, we don't hear much from her. And it's Leah. Remember Laban? He will do anything to anyone to get what he wants, even if it means hurting those who are closest to him. And boy, is he hurt. He's hurt Leah deeply. Leah lives a virtual hell because now she has to watch the man that she loves in the arms of the woman whose shadow she has always lived, knowing that she will never be able to do anything that will be able to cause Jacob to love her in the way that he loves Rachel. It says, Jacob played with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. But Leah... She had a special place in God's heart. And God has a special place in his heart for the unloved. And some of us this morning get it. We understand what it means to not be loved. You grew up in a home where there wasn't love, or you're in a marriage where there's not love. Or you've had kids that tell you, I hate you. I I don't want, I don't have you in my life. Or you have kids that say, this is how far you can go, Dad. You can talk about this, but you don't, can't talk about that in my, in my life. I love you, but no further. You have kids who walk out and you tell you, I don't ever want to see you again. And that hurts. It, it, it deeply hurts. And God sees the hurt. God sees the rejection. And God saw the rejection that Leah endured. And Leah was blessed by God. Because Rachel, for all of her beauty, I mean, all of her knockout looks, all of her just absolute beauty, this head-turning gal, for all of that that she had, there was something she could never give to Rachel. She, at that time, wasn't able to give to Jacob, but Leah could. Something that Jacob desperately wanted. And it was children. And when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, it, that, that's a hard phrase in Hebrew. Because it's not just she wasn't loved, she was, the word is a strong word. She's hated. So I think for Leah, she represents the deception that Laban pulled on him. And God opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Boy, could Rachel or could Leah have kids? She has three, just bing, bing, bing. And listen to what she says after the, after the birth of the third one. Now at last my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Well, he wasn't, was he? It was just, oh, it's another son. 
and he doesn't love her. And she is thinking that if I can just give him sons, because what is it that Leah wants? Leah wants love. She wants to be cherished. She wants to be seen for who she is. She wants to come out from behind the shadow of this beautiful sister and be seen in love for who she truly is. And if I can just have kids, if I can just give him sons, boy, that's a huge thing in Asian culture. It's not just one thing to have, to have children, but to have sons. When Beck and I were working with the Hmong, uh, we had our firstborn son was nine, six, and our second-born son was 9-5. And the, the Hmong that we were working with, they came with a pencil and paper, and they said, our wives want to know, what did your wife eat that you got such big babies? Because they want to eat the same thing. And they want one big child so the rest will come out easy. But they, they've said to me over and over, you have been blessed. Two sons, two big sons, you've been blessed by God. And Leah has three, and she's still unnoticed. But something happens in the heart of Leah that is amazing. She gets, gets pregnant again. And this time she says, this time I will praise the Lord. And so she named him Judah. That's a powerful line. This time I will praise the Lord. I really believe that what happened in Leah, I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. But I think in Leah what happened was that she stopped looking to God. She stopped looking to Jacob to meet the deepest needs for her life and began looking to God to meet the deepest needs of her life. <laughs> what she named that fourth child? Judah. Did God bless Leah? He blessed the socks off of her. Who comes out of the line of Judah? <laughs> Jesus. In two weeks, Pastor Jim is going to share about Judah. Ah, he is an unlikely candidate for the line of Christ to come through. Very unlikely. And yet God took this messy relationship and did something amazing. Does God understand what it means to be rejected? Jesus bore the sting of rejection. He bore the sting of rejection, and he knows exactly what you're going through. And he will never reject you. I was 28 years old, and working with the Hmong and Lao and Cambodians in the San Joaquin Valley in California, doing leadership training and working with their churches. And God was just doing powerful work. And our district conference asked me to give a report about what it was that God was doing. And I gave my report, and man, God was doing some amazing things. And I didn't do a lot of speaking then. I did, it was more behind the scenes, but I got up there and uh, gave a presentation. Afterwards, this guy makes a beeline right up for me, and he says, I want you to preach at my church. Well, it wasn't just anybody. He was the pastor of our largest church in our district. I mean, it was a church of 1,000 people on a Sunday morning. And he asked me, a 28-year-old guy, to come and preach there. Boy, that ticked every last box in my thing. Because what was I looking for? I was looking for significance. I was looking for meaning in my life. And I was looking that when people saw me, that they saw somebody, man, he could preach well. And boy, he is a great pastor. Hmm. 
Have things changed much? That was my heart. That is my heart. And if I'm not careful, I can look to you to meet the deepest need of my life. That pastor, when I finished preaching, I mean, I poured my heart into that message. I think I did a pretty good job, but who knows? I mean, he didn't think I did a good job. Because when the sermon was over, I looked over at him, and he just put his head down and shook his head. And afterward, nobody came up to us, and uh, so we walked out, and they said, oh, go to the office, and you can get your honorarium check. So I went to the office, and his office was like at, at the very end, and I saw him sitting there at his desk, and he looked at me and he just kind of shook his head and turned his chair around and looked at the wall, and I thought, ouch, and I don't think you've ever heard that story. But I remember walking through that great big parking lot all by myself and thinking, ah, I guess I didn't do a very good job today. And he didn't really think anything of what it is I did. And I realized, too, that I realize it now that I can go out looking for significance and meaning and seek to find that in you. And while you're good and while you are precious, you can never meet the deepest needs of my heart and my life. Because I serve a God that even on my worst days, he says, I love you. Even when I throw a, a stinker out there of a message, he said, I still love you. And you still have worth and value in my, in my eyes. Our deepest needs and wants can only be met in Christ. For you as a prayer point this week to go home is ask the question, so what is it that's driving me right now? What is it that makes me stay three hours later at the office? What is it that makes me want to practice so much more? Why is it so important that I do this? Why is it so important that my dad see this in me or my mom sees this in me? Why is it so important that I drive that car? Why is it so important that my kids go to that school or go to that university? Why is it so important that I have this degree? Why is it so important that I am loved by? And to answer that question, what is driving you? Because if it's anything other than Christ, it will always leave us empty. It won't be what you expected. So remember that car that I had to have? Oof. What a nightmare. What a nightmare. That car drove us into debt. And it was my fault. I wanted that car. I'm going to make the decision on this. And it was my, I, I owned that thing. And it was like, we had no money. We left college and went to California. I had to, I found a job just helping a handyman out. And then I worked for like a, like a Lowe's or a Home Depot. I worked at one of those kind of places but really making nothing and just being saddled with this incredible debt from this stupid car that I just had to have. It wasn't what I expected. And the greatest day of my life was when I realized, oh, not only do we need to sell this thing, but the greatest day of my life was when I saw the taillights of that car leaving the church parking lot and going somewhere into Rancho Cordova, California, 
and me being able to take that check to the bank and say, here, put this on the loan and pay it off. I'm done with that. And I wish that was the only time that I ever messed up like that. When I got what I wanted, but it wasn't what you expected. Are you living there now? Have you gotten what you want? Is it what you expected? Because God says in his word, he gave them what they wanted and sent them wasting of soul. And one of my prayers is, God, don't give me what I want. Give me what you want. Today, maybe, too, a, a prayer point is to say, God, forgive me. I have pushed my life. I have pushed my agenda on everything and everyone around me, and I don't realize that, God, you have an agenda for me. I've sought for meaning and for answers in this person and in this thing, and I've realized how empty I am. But God, today, I come back to you. The only one who can meet the deepest needs of my heart and my life. Amen. Amen. Father in heaven, I pray as we have heard your word this morning. That you can work with a guy like Jacob. And that you take the Leahs of this world. cause them to be great in you. Father, you know what each one of us has faced in our lives. You know those things where times where somebody said, you're, you're a mistake, you were an accident. When you were born, I had to leave high school. You've heard people say things like, yeah, we don't need you around here. Or we've lived in the shadow of a sibling who could do no wrong. And we could never do anything right. And we long for love. We long for meaning. We long for significance in this world. And we have sought it in so many different places and in so many ways. And every time we come back with gravel in our mouth. God, we come back to you today. We come back to you and we choose to drink from your well. The spring of living water. That which can meet and can take care of the thirsting of our soul that nothing else can. And I pray that God today as we, as we spend time with you, maybe over this week, that God, you will not let that question drop in our lives of what is it that drives me. And that God, you will tenderly and kindly reveal to us that you are and you are the only one that we need. God, I pray that 
as we go from here too, we will know the healing touch of your hand over hearts that have been broken. Broken when trust was, was broken. And God, you are the one that can bring healing there. So Lord, I pray for wisdom. And I pray for courage and strength as people seek to go about the process of restoring relationships. Especially those ones where a level of trust has been broken. God, if you can work in a messy family like Jacob's, you can work in ours. And I believe you, God, to do in our lives, in our homes, what is only possible by the hand of God. And I worship you and I praise you, great God. Would you bless this precious congregation in a way in which that they know it's from you? Would you pour into their lap more blessing than what they could ever hold? And I pray that as you pour blessing in, that that blessing will be poured out on others around us as well. Love you and I thank you, Father. In Jesus' precious name, amen, amen. Well, as I am uh, leaving today, uh, Beck and I are headed for two weeks of holiday, so I will not be around um, for uh, the next two Sundays. Pastor Sam will take up to... Up, up next week, and Pastor Jim Hildebrand uh, in two weeks, and then in three weeks, I'll join back up here. Um, I thank you for allowing me to go away on holiday. You need me to go away on holiday, uh, so uh, I thank you for that. If there a need should arise, uh, the elders are available uh, to for you to contact, but I'm going to be uh, in Montana and Minnesota seeing kids and grands and just unplugging for the next two weeks. So thank you, and we'll see you when I get back from holiday. Lord bless you.